This episode of Physical Attraction is sponsored by Podcorn. Some of you out there may be fellow podcasters, e.g. if you're in our Science Podcasts Facebook group. If so, you'll know the extraordinary amount of work that has to go into researching, writing, recording and editing your own show. If you're a small indie show like this one, getting sponsorships to make what you do even remotely sustainable can be tough. Podcorn are aiming to change that. It's a place where podcasters can go to pitch ad space on their shows to people who might want to work with them. One advantage to this is you do get to pick who you work with, I know other shows use dynamic insertion, which is done by their podcasting company, and therefore they end up filled with extremely ironic ads for people they've just criticised. This way I can filter out neoclassical economists, fossil fuel companies, any governments that I've criticised, and flat earthers, so it's all good. If you're a podcaster and you want to find out more, check out the Podcorn link in our show notes, and thanks for listening to this and helping me buy more caffeine. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week our guest is David Gerard. He has been a writer and researcher on cryptocurrency and blockchain for a number of years now, including writing the book Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain in 2017 and, of course, maintaining the blog of the same name. We had a very wide-ranging discussion about blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies and so on, and Facebook's own cryptocurrency Libra as well. Without further ado then, the interview. Hello, David. So first of all, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show to talk about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Um, You are the author of two books on uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain and uh, the book on Libra, which is how Facebook's uh, sort of made its move into this market. Um, So when you're talking about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, I think it's very easy to be mystified and bamboozled in part because I think a lot of people kind of benefit from pretending that this is a lot more complicated and technically involved than it actually is. But I think it would be helpful if we could start from the very basics so that everyone is on the same page, uh, with apologies for those who know already and for making you repeat this information. But what is Bitcoin and what is the blockchain? Okay, so for this audience, we will probably go a little technical. So the idea is to have a sort of digital money. Now, that's a reasonable idea. You can pass around a five-pound note or whatever, but maybe we could do that on computers because we've got computers now. Um, The trouble, of course, is that a lot of the point of digital is you can make perfect copies of things. So you don't want to have five-pound notes you can just cut and paste. So the usual way of doing this is to have a central authority, like you have your debit card, you swipe it, you pay for your coffee, and your bank is the central authority that... um, accounts for your five pounds, sends five pounds to the shop, that sort of thing. But what if you don't trust banks for some reason? What if we could do this with no central authority? It's a complete standalone system. So there are people who really, really wanted this. And so that's what Bitcoin sort of achieved. It used a very kludgy method to do this, which we'll get onto. But it did sort of achieve this trick of having a system with individual tokens, all cryptographically assured, which you couldn't just copy and paste. The way it does this is that you have a centralized ledger, which lots of people have thousands of copies of. And when you have a Bitcoin, what you have is a cryptographic key, right? That's the thing you have on your computer a key that authenticates a particular address on that public ledger and you can move coins to another address or whatever 
using that key. So that's what you have when you have a Bitcoin. The way they did this is they use a thing that's called the blockchain. What a blockchain is, it's just a, an append-only ledger, a ledger you can only add new entries to. There's that, and there's a mechanism for adding new entries to the ledger. That's it. That's the whole thing, right? Um, this is really simple. So the question then becomes not what is a blockchain or what is Bitcoin. The question is, why is Bitcoin? Now, that's where it gets interesting. Because this was all started by people with frankly bizarre ideas about economics. Um, there was a certain strain of people on the old cypherpunks mailing list in the 1990s, the people who were just getting cryptography going. There was a certain strain of them who were into anarcho-capitalist politics, which was a sort of extreme version of um, Austrian economics, the gold bugs, the people who want gold to be the money and not have sort of fiat currency and fractional reserve banking and all that sort of stuff. So we went off the gold standard in the 30s and it was completely dead by 1971 um, because it wasn't really working anymore. There was too much economic activity for all the gold, all the um, gold to actually sustain. So we went off that standard and eventually we just started printing money and having it guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the governments in question. If it was a big government like the United States, that was reasonably trusted by people, it turns out. If it was a small country, they were in danger of possibly overdoing it and printing too much money and going into hyperinflation like Zimbabwe. Um, however, printing money doesn't automatically lead to hyperinflation. Like, that literally doesn't follow. There's a mode of pseudoscience, right, where you take an idea that has used to be science and accepted, but has been found to be wrong and it's been discarded. And then the pseudoscientists adopt that idea and say, no, that's actually correct. And they furiously embrace it. So that's what the gold bugs basically did with uh, the gold standard. The Bitcoiners, or the people who became the Bitcoiners, decided they wanted that too. But they wanted a digital version. So they wanted to have this money where you could not create new coins. Also, and this is important, the government couldn't take your coins away. They couldn't dive into your account and steal your hard-earned money for taxes or money you owed them or whatever. Um, this was actually a design characteristic of Bitcoin. But that's why they had this requirement that the blockchain had to be irreversible. Transactions cannot be reversed. So no sort of central authority can come in and then say, we're going to undo this transaction. Once it's done, it's immutable. Absolutely. This is, this is touted as a feature. Um, I would say it's not really a feature. I would say it's actually a crippling problem in real life. But um, they were sure this was a great idea. So... The thing is that Bitcoin came from weird politics that doesn't work and ideas on economics that had already failed, but they were sure they were brilliant. Bitcoin was an attempt to push these ideas into the real world, like the very structure of Bitcoin, the way it's set up to work is to enforce these particular ideas. Now, just because people want this to be true doesn't mean it actually works, and so they originally wanted to make Bitcoin into cash, like the Bitcoin white paper, the subtitle is a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Um, it failed really hard. Merchants wouldn't take it. Consumers hated it because 
one mistake, you've lost your coins. It's really brittle. The irreversibility makes it super hard to use. Um, Bitcoiners thought the price will only go up, and so they wouldn't spend the coins. Merchants would regularly get hassled by Bitcoiners to accept Bitcoins. They'd set it up. No one would use it. They'd switch it off maybe a year later, and then they get more Bitcoiners complaining it was switched off than had ever actually used it. So it basically didn't work as cash. And then by about, and also the trouble with Bitcoin was it was originally the first cardboard and string mock-up that you could do this idea at all, right? Which was an interesting technical idea. I don't want to take that away, but um, it couldn't scale up. Um, so it could only do seven transactions a second total, like maybe about four in practice. And, those in 10-minute blocks, right? Every 10 minutes, there's a new block of uh, transactions. So its capacity was really low. So about, about mid-2015, it completely filled. And suddenly, there was no room for um, transactions. Transactions went up in price, became slow, unreliable, and basically was really terrible to use as cash. So it became what it is now, which is a sort of weird investment thing. But um, so... If, the thing is that there's the way that they achieved this not decentralization trick, which was a thing called Bitcoin mining. Now, I said that this, this is a really kludgy way of doing it. It really is. Because the problem was what's called the Sybil problem. You have like, you want to get a random number of people just voting on a problem. And you want to make sure that no one can have too much weight. The civil problem is when they put up a whole bunch of sock puppets and those sock puppets all have a vote, right? So so the concern here would be that one individual would try to take over the blockchain exactly. um, by having lots of their own individual uh, mining hardware or, or different separate accounts posing as separate people who um, destroy the democracy of the blockchain. Because the idea of this is that you're recording the, there's no central authority that is recording any of the transactions, but it's done in this distributed way um, across lots of different pieces of hardware, keeping it together. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's what they wanted. The only way that um, Satoshi Nakamoto, the person who invented Bitcoin, that's a pseudonym, but we don't know his name, so he's just Satoshi, um, was to use a thing he called proof of work. So what this is, is you have to put up some resource that can't be faked. And the resource that can't be faked is electricity run through computing power. So what you do, way Bitcoin mining works is they set it up as a lottery. You get a block of transactions. You pick a random number. You put the random number onto the block of transactions. You take a hash of it, and which gives a number at the output. And if that hash at the end is a small enough number, you win the Bitcoins. And roughly one winner every 10 minutes. If there's more winners every 10 minutes, then the difficulty goes up. So if you want to compete, you have to add more computers, spending more electricity, wasting more power to compete to win the Bitcoins. So it's literally a competition to see who can throw the most electricity away guessing numbers to win a lottery. And there's no upper limit on this. So it started as like two guys' PCs just guessing numbers. And now it's like 0.1 to 0.5% of all the electricity in the world 
or the whole country of Argentina, for example, just guessing numbers, guessing wrong, throwing away the guesses, sextillions of times per minute to try to win the Bitcoins. Head back a little bit. When you talked about the ideology um, and the the sort of hyper-libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, maybe Ayn Rand reading or Ayn Rand adjacent ideology, one thing that I think is uh, an interesting point here is, was the ideology there from the very beginning? Because there might be a perception that this is some technical innovation that um, some anonymous person, Satoshi or whoever, came up with. Um, and then people who had that ideology gravitated towards it in the same way that people who wanted to uh, transact um, in, you know, who want to evade governments or so on would go onto the dark web, um, even though that might have been developed for different reasons. Um is that what happened or is it more that the ideology was there to begin with and it appealed to this very specific group of people who had this ideology to begin with and then that has just been multiplied outwards um, as an investment case for uh, Bitcoin, which we'll, we'll talk about it as a sort of speculative asset and the arguments people make to invest in it a little bit later on. So Satoshi was never a really big ideological libertarian, though he was delighted they came along, but a lot of his assumptions sort of come from a world where you assume that that's true because it's what your friends say and they're smart, so they must be right. And, I mean, Hal Finney, who was the guy who Satoshi used as his beta tester, was definitely very into anarcho-capitalism. And there were a lot of people on the mailing list he originally announced Bitcoin on, the, the crypto cryptography policy mailing list, sorry, who were definitely interested in that sort of thing. I think Satoshi shared the background assumptions, even though he wasn't heavy on the ideology himself. The people who were heavy on it saw it immediately and went, yes, this is what we want. And he encouraged them. So the thing about Bitcoin is the interesting part's not the technology. Like you'll hear them, Bitcoiners talk about it. It's like, oh, you need to read the white paper. Oh, you just don't understand the technology. The tech is simple. Like it's a ledger and a way to decide and they decide using a lottery. The whole question is why? And I think there were a lot of attempts at various forms of cryptographic money, but Bitcoin took off because it had a cult. It had a cult of people who believed impossible things and wanted to get rich for free. And if you want to get rich for free, that's going to be a very popular product, right? You don't even have to deliver. It's going to be a really, really popular product. You can sell that to anyone, tell them, this doesn't make sense, but if you keep doing the things, you'll get rich for free. And they'll say, yes, I believe the things and talk about them continuously. And this is where we get Bitcoin on Twitter. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, you say that there were these other examples of cryptographic money um, because part of the sales pitch that is given for investing in in Bitcoin in particular and, and uh, blockchain related technologies more generally is this idea that it was some revolutionary new technology that will, you know, change things in the way that the World Wide Web did or so on. And, you know, the, the, the argument you're making there is that essentially this is just another protocol that um, had it not found this original sort of foundational cult, I guess, um, and then, of course, had it not changed in price so drastically, which has led to the uh, speculative mania around it, um, would would just have been sort of something of interest. You know, it's like a, it's like a computer science... Um, white paper that would have been of interest to, you know, cryptographic geeks and people who are interested in this sort of thing, um, but might not be that well known to people outside of that field um, in the same way that people probably couldn't tell you who, you know, the average person on the street 
who can tell you about Bitcoin might not be able to tell you who PGP um, encryption is or, or RSA, who those three computer scientists are. It was definitely an innovation, right? No one had quite done this trick before. It is a pretty cool trick to have achieved, even if it's like the sort of thing you go, how the hell do you even do that? What on earth is that? You know, but um, that's not the same as feasible or a good idea. And I don't think it's either feasible or a good idea, but it was definitely an innovation. I wouldn't take that away from it. Um, Satoshi built on old materials. Like there's no new idea that Bitcoin's built on from later than about 2001. There's a lot of things that came before it, but Satoshi was the first to quite do the completely detached from outside control trick. Now, the thing is that the decentralization eventually didn't work out because the thing about adding more res computing resources is this is something that has economies of scale. The bigger you get, the more you can add. So what rapidly happened was that one, Bitcoin mining became specialized. They went from using CPUs to using graphics cards, from there to using um, FPGAs program to mine Bitcoins, to just making special integrated circuits that do nothing but mine Bitcoin. They're not useful for any other thing. And at this stage, we have warehouses full of this stuff that are, you know, bigger in some, well, I, I don't know whether bigger necessarily, but in terms of the computing power they're using, are larger than the data frames that are behind things like Google and Facebook and, and YouTube and Netflix and so on. Yep. It is the biggest distributed computing network in the world, even if it can literally run one, one, run one calculation. And not one that actually, you know, has any practical value in and of itself. Um, Precisely. So I, I want to I want to get into this a little bit more then. So this major advantage of Bitcoin that's touted and and cryptocurrencies in general is this idea that you no longer need to trust a central authority to make transactions. And the sort of two questions there is one: to what extent is that actually true of Bitcoin? And the second extent there, and perhaps the more important question is: what is actually the advantage of not having the central authority? Because you know you make arguments persuasively in the book and and. Uh, you know, I, you can read these all over the place that essentially, in most cases, for most use cases, people do actually want a central authority when they're making transactions. Yeah. So the use case, the political use case is you want to be able to run our own money that doesn't depend on anyone else. Or that is, we have these unfakeable tokens, so we're going to call them money. I mean, you can do that. You know, people invent currencies themselves all the time if they can't get hold of proper currency. Um, so that's fine. But also the trouble with saying it's trustless is that any financial system or anything that claims to be money even isn't just the technical details. It's actually a whole system of people and institutions and so on. If you want to use Bitcoin in practice, you're going to be dealing with the institutions, the exchanges. It's not practical for individuals to mine Bitcoin themselves anymore. Um, you'll have to go to exchanges, trust them. You have to trust that other people have coded stuff properly. You have to trust there aren't backdoors in stuff. Like if you buy a hardware wallet, that their coding is up to scratch. Um, sometimes it has proven not to be that sort of thing. And also if you make a system that's low trust like this, this immediately attracts the sort of people who absolutely just cannot be trusted. And as soon as you get naive people going, wow, it's a whole new paradigm. There's a new world of money. We're free. Then you get scammers come along wanting to prey on them. 
like we saw this a lot with Bitcoin, like so many Bitcoin scammers turn out to have passed form. Used to be people who used to be into mail fraud, that sort of thing. A recent example, the Quadriga Bitcoin exchange in Canada, the guy who ran it, who allegedly died in India. And it's amazing, I have to say, allegedly, you know, <laughs> Um, it turned out that he'd been running. He was he was a charming fellow. Everyone loved him. They thought he was just the greatest guy. He was everyone's friend. He was nice, really nice. It turned out he was a con man. He'd been running Ponzi schemes since the age of fifteen. <laughs> it's like That's impressive. Start young. Um, absolutely. So many <laughs> people look at the world and they think I can get whatever I want just by saying the right words to people. That's the thing with a Ponzi scheme, isn't it? If you start early, you do actually profit. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but um, It's a great field to go into if you have no ethics or morals or standards. Some of these scams that, um, that you describe, and obviously we should say that part of the reason why it's so attractive to do this with cryptocurrencies is because of the irreversibility of the transaction. Exactly. If I pick your pocket from the other side of the world, those are my coins now. Yeah, and there's just no, there's no, there's no one you can appeal to. There's no, um, and this, of course, is the the problem with not having the central trust authority. I'm sure everyone listening to this who who has a bank account uh, will have been phoned up by their bank at some point saying that someone has tried to buy unknown item that they're not familiar with, and they've had to call their bank and cancel the transaction, go through that whole rigmarole, uh, cut up the card or whatever it is. And obviously, in the case of Bitcoin, you can't do that. There's no way of retrieving your money. And that, and this is what makes it attractive to, to scammers. But I mean, some of the scams that you described in your book were amazing. I, I quite liked uh, the double your Bitcoin scams that showed up. Oh, a lot yeah, those are great. So uh, this is sort of you, you send Bitcoin to a random wallet. Um, you send a small amount. They send you twice as much back. Uh, you're like, oh, great, that's worked. You send a large amount. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, maybe, or maybe they don't, or maybe you just think they will, and or maybe someone else tells you they did, or something like that. It, it's great. I mean, there's been and, some wallet, le- there's been some sort of wallet inspector level. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not the wallet inspector. There's been some wallet inspector level scams that have been pulled on people. There are ways to use Bitcoin that would presumably maximize all of the security and the value of doing things on a blockchain, right? So if you didn't use an exchange, if you just had everything in your own private sort of hardware wallet, if you were transferring it to an individual address without necessarily using an exchange to do the payments, you you could presumably use this technology in a secure way. But in practice, people don't. And they go through the exchanges because it's much more convenient. And it's that interface between the cryptocurrency and the fiat currency, uh, which is extremely vulnerable. And of course, some of these exchanges in the past have had their own problems, haven't they? Yeah. Um, Exchanges get hacked or disappear all the time. Um, But also... That's the only. That's the reason people are interested. There is no cryptocurrency economy. There's no sort of Bitcoin economy where people buy and sell and pay their rent and buy their food in Bitcoin. It's all in actual money. So you have to have the exchange back and forth to real money. It's only ever a proxy for real money. Um, so this means that, of course, governments are very interested because it's used to work around rules around real money. And so... Bitcoin sort of recapitulates the history of finance, including all the scams. It's amazing. And it says, deinstitutionalize, be your own bank, cut out the middlemen, like 
firstly, you don't want to be your own bank. Why the hell would you want to be your own bank? That's just really weird and dumb. But you know, um, it's like, no, I am not a, I am not a chief security officer. I pay someone to do this. They're better at it than me. Civilization works on division of labor. You know, we each have our job. Um, it's like. Why would you want to do that? The answer is because you are deeply suspicious of governments because of ideological reasons, or you're deeply suspicious of governments because you're a goddamn crook and they want to put you in jail. <laughs> you know, it turns out that the, that's, that group of people also has a strong attraction to this stuff. And so even if there was some sort of, I mean, I suppose this is, you know, in terms of our political views, you would say this is always the problem with the uh, anarcho-capitalist paradise where you rely on a uh, a non-aggression principle or I suppose a non-fraud principle where people aren't going to try and rip each other off because that wouldn't be the right thing to do. And ultimately what happens is you kind of end up wishing you had some sort of central authority that could sort out the disputes between you and the, you know, the only 1% of people it takes who are trying to rip you off um, to kind of pollute your, your perfect um, anarcho-capitalist property rights respecting community, right? The ideology doesn't actually hang together or work in real life at all, is basically the problem. And if you want examples of this, I'm going to point at Bitcoin and everything about it that's actually how it's worked out. Um, it's rapidly turned into a thing where there's no, it doesn't work as cash. You can't buy stuff with it. You can't do stuff with it. Essentially, the only use case Bitcoin has now is buying and selling and holding it, like trading it, speculation. This means that form makes economic bubbles because there's nothing else it can do you know like when the 2017 bubble collapsed in 2018 i predicted that there'd be another one in like a few years because by then you'd have a fresh crop of suckers um there are some people who are just life suckers right we all know someone like this a friend or an uncle or something they are the people who 20 years ago they would have been buying ostrich farms and now they're they in 2017 they bought cryptocurrencies, they bought ICO tokens and Bitcoins and whatever. And they're always looking for a new scam. They're always looking to get scammed, basically, because they just see the world in terms of there's one weird trick, and if I learn it, I'll win. And if they ever do win, they lose all their money in six months. So yeah, those people are always going to be there, and they're always going to love stuff like this. Um, what happened after 2018 was Bitcoin collapsed, and they spent the next two years, two, three years trying to pump it up. Um, putting everything in Canada, trying to pump the Bitcoin story and uh, creating imaginary dollars to try to pump the price number up and so on. And it took until like February 2021 when the price had been pumped up from $20,000 to $40,000 for a Bitcoin before we short saw any actual retail interest, before normal people started getting back into it. It was actually just in the last month or so. And um, I suppose the, the trouble is that I mean, you've said you've said that the people who are investing in this as a speculative asset are, you know, suckers in in your words. Um, I think part of the problem is that not everyone who invests in a bubble um, or a sort of Ponzi finance dynamic like Bitcoin has, where you're hoping to be paid um, by people who come in later than you. That's essentially the point. You're hoping that you will be able to sell on your assets to a greater fool. Um, not all of those people do lose money. Some of them can make an awful lot of money because Absolutely. they're successfully in the earlier stages of the Ponzi scheme. And, you know, I mean, we, we of course, um, in, in, in the States, this is a big problem and, 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 and in Britain to an extent as well. You've got multi-level marketing. 
And the problem with those multi-level marketing type schemes is that some people do indeed get rich off them and can point to their success in them. And people believe that it will be possible for them to do the same thing because they've seen that. And this is true of Bitcoin for some people who, you know, bought in before the price doubled or tripled and any asset um, there's always going that, that has such strange price fluctuations. There's always going to be some people who can say, I bought it at 2000 and sold it at 8000 and now I've made a load of money. Um, but obviously, for everyone who's done that, there's going to be someone who has just bought it at, at the top price that it's at at the moment and who is not going to be uh, bailed out perhaps by future purchases at the price that it's at. Absolutely. I should always point out, you can totally get rich in crypto, but it is basically unregulated. It's a pool full of sharks and you are the tasty meat they want to chow down on. So you can get rich, but you will probably lose your shirt. But you can totally make money in crypto if you are that good at this dancing with sharks. Um, I should also point out someone will doubtless object. Bitcoin is not a Ponzi because it doesn't have a single central Ponzi master. So that's technically the case. But um, it just works like a Ponzi. That is... Later, earlier buyers can only be paid by later buyers, which is a Ponzi-like mechanism. So it's not a Ponzi, it just works like one. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wouldn't call it a, a Ponzi scheme, but I would call it, I, I want to say Hyman Minsky called this sort of dynamic Ponzi financing. And that, that is the stage where, you know, it, it's a bubble that is being inflated, not not even on the promise, ultimately, of any underlying uh, belief in the currency or, or its usefulness uh, or its value Aside from the belief, um, the expectation of future profits. I think that's absolutely the driving force in everything to do with crypto at the moment. Like Bitcoin started in ideology, um, sincere ideology, right? They weren't liars. They were very sincere about all this stuff. Um, but And they still espouse the ideology. But in practice, the only consistent ideology is number go up. That is the only one. That's why these devoted anti-governmental, anti-regulation, anarcho-capitalists will say, yes, institutional adoption is good for us. Yes, we want a SEC-approved ETF. We want all this sort of stuff. You know, Oh, good, we've got a crypto-positive person in this government agency, that sort of thing. You know, Because the only, that only makes sense if the only ideology is number go up. Yes. Why would you want your um, and and this is this is a big part of the problem, isn't it? Really, is that there are a few different contradictions that come in here. Um, there is one question I wanted to ask before we get onto this, which is just and I think we've sort of covered it a little bit, but one of my Patreon supporters wanted to ask you this question, which is if replacing a bank with a huge pile of source code as your root of trust is actually an improvement, because the distributed trust it, it's it's not distributed in the sense that you've automated the sort of verification processes and the ledger that would ordinarily be uh, done by the employees of the bank and the processes that the bank has. And then if the bank makes a mistake, they can, you know, refund you and they're ultimately backed by the state. Uh, so if the bank actually collapses in the case of, uh, well, we've seen that happen, of course, but when banks collapse, they there tends to be a deposit security for people who had their money in the bank. Um, but But in the case of this, the underlying source code is the thing that you're trusting. And uh, since not everyone is reading the source code, since in many cases, particularly with uh, less well-known uh, cryptocurrencies and and uh, and so on, people aren't actually reading and understanding the code. Um, 
they're, they're putting their trust in some code which can have bugs in it and lead to or, these irretrievable problems. Yeah. So, yes, um, it's basically a lot of it comes from the drive to automate away the human elements because they don't understand or trust the human elements. But ultimately, you're not going to achieve a transcendental post-human state by adopting a magical computer money. You are human and you're stuck with it. I think that's really the bottom line on this, you know. Um, and also, money is a social thing. It's a social agreement. Property is a social thing. It's These are legal frameworks and social agreement. You need both. You need both the laws in place and you need people agreeing that this is a thing and taking it seriously. That applies to all property. That applies to all money, you know. Um, if a government issues money and no one takes it seriously, then it hyperinflates and people um, use it as toilet paper. If you have a social construct, but not a legal one, someone who does have the law on their side can take it away from you. Um, so trying to automate the process, you end up with um, the tyranny of structurelessness, where you say there are no rules, but of course there are implicit rules. But also, Bitcoin mining has centralized. By dint of economies of scale, by 2014, we hit the stage where 51% of all mining was one mining pool, which was supposed to be the Bitcoin apocalypse, right? Because as soon as anyone could control the whole thing, of course, they'd rip everyone off because they have a very low opinion of their fellow humans. As it happens, this didn't occur because it turns out these people had money in this and they didn't want to spook people. So that promptly split into two separate pools that um, were claimed not to have shared ownership. Nobody knows. At the moment, it's like typically three or four mining pools control all the Bitcoin mining, and maybe they're owned by different people. Although we do know that they all talk to each other. You can have 90% of the Bitcoin mining capacity standing on a stage together. Decentralized in this sense is a word meaning can't sue me, bro. It doesn't mean actually decentralized. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the interesting point, isn't it, really? Because it, it, it's a case of you've dispensed with the trust that you would have to have in a bank um, or someone else to, uh, to process your payments and keep track of them for you, as in PayPal or Visa. The difference being that those people are accountable. Um, they can be sued. Uh, they can be uh, pursued if they did try to rip you off. And ultimately... Most of those uh, establishments are backed by the state. And, you know, you get this false equivalency sometimes when talking to people who are enthusiastic about cryptocurrencies, um, a false equivalency between fiat currency and cryptocurrency. Uh, money that is backed by governments is backed by the monopoly on the legitimate use of force, whereas cryptocurrency is backed by what people think that it's worth, um, which is less solid backing than what actual fiat currencies have, which presumably I think is why, as you say, the average cryptocurrency enthusiast is not going to consent to a world where they wouldn't be able to exchange their cryptocurrencies back for fiat again, because that's what they really want. Yeah. I mean, let's be fair. The um, crypto asks a lot of the right questions. Like it, Bitcoin came about, it was released just during the um, financial crisis of 2008, 2009, um, there were a whole lot of bankers who didn't go to jail who really, really should have. 
And so what the hell? State institutions, they won't back you up. These people didn't even go to jail. That's the right question. Their answer is on crack, but they're asking a right question. You know, um, you need to know that the institutions will work as advertised to a better extent than they did. Though, on the other hand, the bank guarantee schemes did actually work, you know. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think this is part of the problem, isn't it? it? It's why this ideology is very attractive to people, because you have clear villains, um, which is, you know, the government, the central banks, the sort of shadowy organizations who are pulling the strings of everything. And you know, in, in a lot of cases, as you say, especially after the financial crisis, but now just as much as people don't trust these institutions. They don't trust banks. Uh, they don't trust, you know, this is a this is a bit of a, a rambling diversion here. But a friend of mine a few years ago um, knew that I had been doing a bit of research into economics and, and sent me a video um, which began with fractional reserve banking. So this is, you know, the concept, obviously, that the banks have a certain uh, amount of reserve that they have to hold in actual assets, and then they can loan money on top of that and essentially, uh, in a sense, bring the money into being by loaning it out to people. And they only need to have a certain fraction of their reserves. And, you know, most people don't know this is how it works. Um, They sort of buy into the idea that uh, banks are only loaning out other people's deposits when they make loans. And it began with this fractional reserve banking, this sort of economy explainer video, uh, which he'd sent me. And uh, then it moved into incredible conspiracy theory about JFK being assassinated because he take the US off the gold standard and the Rothschilds controlling everything in a big conglomeration and all this sort of thing. And, it, you know, obviously I had to say, this is, this is a conspiracy theory. The bit about fractional reserve banking is true. Um, the rest of it, jumps off into wild and quite anti-Semitic territory. This is where Bitcoin came from, by the way, and that's very important. It literally came from international banker conspiracy theories where international meant Jew. Um, A lot of Bitcoiners don't know this and they would be repulsed by these ideas, but that's nevertheless historically where all this stuff came from and they echo a lot of it in Bitcoin discourse today. People feel like they don't understand the financial system. They feel like it's being run against them. Um, in many cases, they're correct. Um, yes. The thing but, is that but, actually the, there's a lot wrong with the system, but Bitcoin managed to come up with an answer that was even worse. Yeah, right, exactly. And I think, I think that, but this is, it, it sort of explains why the ideology is something that people can buy into because they want to see this sort of almost, sometimes when you read what these people have to write, there's an almost millennialist aspect to it where it's like, well, we're going to destroy the central banks and we're going to destroy uh, the existing financial system entirely. And people are open to hearing that message because of the lack of uh, trust and faith that they have in financial institutions. And, uh, you know, whether they manifest this as as disliking the central bank or not is, is sort of... Wanting to set fire to things is absolutely a reasonable and sensible urge. But, um, probably you need to apply your fire with judicious thought first. It's like when we talked on the show before about conspiracy theories, and I always have some level of sympathy with conspiracy theorists because I feel like they have <laughs> they have energy, which in some cases is more justified than you might think initially, but it's just been misdirected by a bunch of charlatans and manipulators to point at the wrong set of targets for the wrong reasons. When I wrote the book about Facebook's crypto, um, their attempts at crypto Libra, they're calling it DM now, 
um, if it ever gets released, which it probably won't. Um, it's like I wrote this book and suddenly um, a friend pointed out, you've written a book with the central bankers of the good guys. <laughs> and I had because they were still better idea than letting Facebook run the money because at least they were public institutions, you know, and they think of themselves as public institutions and they try to do the right thing. And there's some theoretical accountability there, right? You can at least theoretically uh, vote for people who have influence over this sort of thing. People in power do remember that one of the important, that going out in the streets and setting fire to things is part of the democratic process. That is, if you push it too far, people will. And they'd rather that didn't happen. So running things so that people don't want to do that is part of the job. So we have this case. So our case for analysis here, Bitcoin is essentially a speculative asset. It's got this sort of old uh, libertarian type ideology uh, sort of shackled to it, which is which everyone has to insist that what they have is a revolutionary technology and it's going to be really good because of this anarcho-capitalist type um, and the central bank's uh, ideology to it. Also, it's always going to be. It isn't is, it's going to be. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, but th- th- So you have this sort of marriage of the of the two things that are, that are that are quite contradictory. One is the fact that you're really investing in it because you want the price to go up and you want to sell it onto other people. And the second one is that, you know, like any such scheme, you have to convince everyone that you don't want that, that you're not investing in it as a speculative asset. Because in many cases, if they believe that you were investing in it as a speculative asset and didn't actually believe it was valuable, that might diminish their confidence in the tendency of you to hold on to it and therefore for the price to go up. And so you end up with these contradictions between people's real motivations and their underlying motivations. And I think you can see these showing up in a couple in, in a couple of ways that I think is are quite sharp. One is you've already alluded to, if this is supposed to be the thing that that overthrows the banks and the central banks and the financial institutions writ large, then the institutional adoption of this and the sort of fact that it's being bought up now by pension funds should be absolutely antithetical to your ideology. Bitcoin was a version one of this idea of doing away with trust and having a cryptocurrency. Um, There have been better ones created, um, which use algorithms that are, for example, less wasteful than uh, proof of work to to secure their blockchains. Presumably, they would want to, if you believe in the value of cryptocurrencies, you would want to adopt, uh, you know, version two, version five, version 10, um, the improvements that have subsequently been made in the technology. But people don't. Instead, they adopt the one or, you know, they talk about the one uh, with the biggest current dollar value and the biggest current following and the highest likelihood of price go up. I mean, they have the other one that has been adopted is Ethereum. Now, the way that works is it does the same proof of work thing. It wastes a smaller country's worth of electricity, but you can run little programs on it. They're called smart contracts. They're not smart. They're not contracts. They are literally just computer programs, right? Like in enterprise computing, we call these database triggers or stored procedures, but they had to come up with a new name for them. And um, with those, you can do things like run a program that makes another token that runs on top of Ethereum, like an application running an operating system. And this is where we got ICO tokens, where you had these centrally controlled things that were just crypto tokens, like having little individually stamped pieces of paper, but they're running on a 
blockchain. So therefore, they're very cool and very blockchainy and very decentralized, even if they're completely centralized. And they're very magical. And if you don't understand it, don't worry about the technology. Just spend your money. But yeah, um, it turns out people care mostly about the money. The only important cryptocurrencies really are Bitcoin and Ethereum because they're the ones you can change for real money readily, widely around the world. So when when some new protocol comes out, I mean, I, I wrote about one of these two or three years ago when I first got interested in Bitcoin because of the first set of stories about its massive energy use. Uh, you know, my main area of research is climate change. And so obviously we're concerned about the amount of carbon emissions oh that are being burnt up to do. Yeah, I bet you to, love Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's that's partly why we're talking about it now. But, um, you know, I, at the time... Um, I'd written an article about its energy consumption. And then I wrote a second article, which was saying, oh, now they've discovered this new, more scalable algorithm uh, for blockchain transactions, which would you know, do this dispensing with the uh, energetically costly proof of work. If people wanted this technology to succeed for whatever supposed merits the lack of trust gives you, um, they would switch over to this sort of new uh, algorithm or new protocol, but they don't because they're interested in this as a speculative asset. That That's my case anyway. Would you agree with that? That is precisely correct. I mean, there are people working on the new stuff. I mean, fine, that's good. I might think that it's bad and for other reasons, but at least it's got that big problem out of the way. I mean, it's sort of really terrible with Bitcoin. I think the absolute worst was when Elon Musk decided that Bitcoin was fun and cool and bought $1.5 billion with Tesla's corporate money. Like, this is an indictment of the present capitalist system where a successful company like Tesla cannot think of anything better to do with $1.5 billion than blow it on magic beans, right? They not invest it, not build things, not design things, just buy magic beans. This is this is more broadly. So, you know, we've, we've done shows in this podcast where we've criticized the tech sector as it exists at the moment. And Elon Musk buying that Bitcoin, as he did, was one of the reasons that made me think, finally, I have to talk about cryptocurrency after having yes. resisted telling people for a really long time. And I think the reason why is precisely what you've said. You know, whatever you think about Tesla, the company, or SpaceX, or whatever Elon Musk is trying to do, or him as a bloke, you know, is not necessarily that relevant. The problem is that if you have a system set up such that it is a more surefire way for Musk to make money by tweeting, you know, random stuff to a bunch of redditors who follow his every word, or investing in digital tokens, or whatever the next speculative bubble of the day is, if he knows that he can more easily and more effectively make money doing that than actually building and doing things and selling things like electric cars and solar panels that we would want him, uh, you know, as climate conscious people to do or sell, then that is a problem. And, you know, you can call it a, a kind of hyper financialized economy or whatever term you want to use. But to me, that's part of the problem with Bitcoin as it exists at the moment people realizing that they can just sort of get capital to try and make more of itself and not actually invest it in any sort of productive capacity that in any tangible way makes the world better. And I think him him buying that Bitcoin with that money rather than, I don't know, opening another battery factory or doing some research and development or something was just indicative of that problem where what capitalism is supposed to do can essentially short circuit itself through these financial loopholes and uh, do money creation almost by itself without actually having to go through the, the difficult intermediary of doing any business. You'd think they were in it for the money. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it, it's worse for it in Musk's case because 
he's he's not really a technologist. He had a degree in physics, but he rapidly became an executive, a salesman. He's a very good salesman, very convincing one. He's got a cult following, as you say. Thing was, he was really, really good for energy transition just because he was a loud voice talking about it a lot. He made electric cars actually cool instead of weird nerd stuff. Like people wanted a Tesla. It was a desirable object. I have not driven one. I'm told that they're really sweet to drive. You know, the door might fall off because they're badly made, but they're sweet to drive, you know. And I'm told by energy transition people that he was actually really, really helpful. He would help them. Musk's name really supported energy transition. He was really good for that job. Then he bought a pile of Bitcoins and trashed it. And it's really, really bad. I really just want him to walk this back because and go back to being useful. You know, I will forgive Musk a lot of his arrant nonsense if he could just keep being a good energy transition salesman. You know what I mean? Yeah, I th- and it, it's you know, given how wasteful it is, it seems counter to a lot of the claims to environmental friendliness that you know he may or may not have. I mean. Um, Teslas have a lot of environmental problems. You know, the big thing is the battery packs. They're a real problem. They're not reusable, recyclable, reconditionable. Um, There's a good article by Frances Coppola. She updated it recently about how we're going from a carbon-based energy economy to a metal-based energy economy. And now all our shortages are going to be... This is all true. Uh, Electric cars do have a problem. They're they use other resources, not carbon, but other resources, they hammer them really badly. But that's still less worse and it's pointing in the right direction because batteries are getting remarkably more efficient in just the last decade. It's a hot area of technology. Now we've hit the tipping point where wind and solar plus battery is cheaper than fossil fuels. Now there's real incentive to make it better and better and better and even better. We're on the right track. We just need Musk not to screw it up again. Absolutely. And that 1.8 billion that he put into Bitcoin, Bitcoin can't possibly scale at present on the blockchain. It's doing something like 30,000 transactions a day. Um, The transactions are costing you $25 each in electricity. It's only going to get worse if there's more strain put on that. And there's often long delays in transactions as well, because it can only process so many per second. Um, And this is, of course, a tiny fraction of what Visa or PayPal or any other um, system of exchange would would currently be able to do, and also a tiny fraction of what you would expect any reasonable currency to be able to handle. I mean, if if, if dollar transactions were limited to thirty thousand a day, then the entire economy would seize up, presumably. No one would use dollars because you need a currency, not uh, not just actual individual gold bars. You need actual like money. Yeah, precisely. Um, so so this scalability problem is a big issue, and. You will see advocates arguing a few different things. I've seen people saying anything and it's opposite, as long as it sounds like good news for Bitcoin. Right. I've seen people argue that you can get around this by uh, exchanging Bitcoins on a Bitcoin exchange, which to me sort of transparently defeats the purpose of using the technology to begin with, because now you're trusting the exchange to mediate your transactions for you. A lot of these Um, solutions are that the blockchain is vastly more efficient if you work around having to use it. Yeah. Which is uh, an interesting point because then you're just at the point of, well, what is the USP here again? Um, but so periodically, Bitcoin advocates have come up with new technological hopes to get around this scalability problem. Um, one of the ones that I've seen a lot of people talk about that we should probably address is this idea of the Lightning Network. <laughs> um, yeah. 
and Bitcoin Cash as well. So I, I wonder if you'd like to talk about some of these attempts to get around the scalability problem and some of the issues that uh, they may or may not have had. So the Lightning Network, um, it doesn't work, it can't work, and it's been six months away from production since it was first uh, proposed in 2015. It was basically proposed when the Bitcoin blockchain started filling and clogging um, because it obviously couldn't be used as cash. They went, hmm, we need something, and they put forward this scheme. And they went, this is something, we must do this. So the actual purpose of the words Lightning Network is for Bitcoin advocates to say them whenever Bitcoin's miserable performance is actually pointed out. Um, it doesn't work. Its own developers say that you shouldn't put money into it, that you can't afford to have vanished to a bug. Um, it doesn't have any liquidity. What liquidity it does have, last I heard, was 60% one guy who like really believes in the system. And that's fine, you know, he'll push it till it gets going. But, you know, in networking, there is a saying, pigs fly just fine with sufficient thrust. <laughs> yeah, if, you, okay. if you strap a rocket to Porky Pig and send him flying into the air, then don't try to convince me of his graceful aerobatics, you know. Um, there's lots of things wrong with the Lightning Network's design. It's trying to solve an impossible problem in computer science. So um, what I understood of it, just to explain ridiculous. this a little bit more, was that it was the idea is that you get around the blockchain itself because we can't do these transactions on the blockchain, the USP of using Bitcoin, because it's too, uh, it's yeah, it's just too unwieldy to essentially do anything practical with it at this point. Um, so you have this peer-to-peer -peer secondary layer, um, which would rely on, I guess, identifying people who wanted to transact with each other so that you could cut down on the total number of actual on blockchain transactions so you know if you have like alice bob and carol or something um and alice wants to pay bob and bob wants to pay carol then you would just route it to one transaction but to me that just seemed to rely on such a high coincidence of transactions that would need to be taking place between the different parties that i didn't really see how it would actually work in practice um so i guess the first question is is that actually what it is and secondly is that why it's a not a solved mathematical problem yet? So what you have is you have a mesh network and you have to actually somehow get from random point A to random point B. This is a problem that pops up a lot. Um, the way we deal with this on the internet is using BGP, which is Border Gateway Protocol, where the, networked, the network of networks, that's why it's called the internet, um, they know where to send packets from random person A to random person B. So you go up to the backbones and back down again. So the Lightning Network paper proposed BGP's uh, analogy for how they were going to do this. The problem there is that BGP is 100% trust-based. It's a pile of surly telecoms engineers in black who don't like anyone and whack on the gaffer tape whenever the internet breaks and that's why anything keeps working. Um, so they literally didn't understand it. This was like one paragraph on page 57 of the white paper. They sort of alluded to it in passing. The problem they didn't know how to solve. The general case of solving this random point A to random point B in a mesh network problem when you don't know anything about the network is not solved. Um, there were various workarounds, such as the one where every time you made a transaction, everyone on the network would get a copy of the entire network map. 
that was pretty cool. Um, and so on. And the only way such a network would be feasible would be in the collapsed degenerate case where you have like one or two or three major providers who everyone goes through as central nodes, which sort of takes away the distributed aspect completely. Yeah. So um, once again, it's the problem of you can get around the problems with getting rid of trust as long as you have some trust. Exactly. A little bit of trust is so stupendously efficient that everyone hits that solution. Trust and the actual layer two we have is the exchanges, right? Um, that's where stuff is exchanged fast and efficiently, and they don't use a blockchain as their internal database. Hell no. No. You know, um, they have their own ledgers, much like a bank. But the level is the level zero. Not regulated. Yeah, they're very bad <laughs> banks. The level zero problem with the Lightning Network is there's no merchant use case for Bitcoin. Nobody actually uses it for that. Even without that, it clogged. But basically, there was never merchant demand before, and there certainly isn't now. They just want to maintain the illusion that it can be used as a currency so that they're not nakedly saying that they are investing in a speculative asset. And I think nowadays, there are even fewer people who are doing that. And there's more people who are just saying, you know, oh, enjoy being poor. I invested in this and made money, you know, which I like in a sense because it's more honest than maintaining the pretense, which is, you know, eight or nine years after the initial introduction of uh, Bitcoin, uh, even longer. It's harder to maintain that pretense now. Yeah, it's like um, there's no one using this stuff. It's not money. Lightning Network doesn't work. It can't work. It doesn't work. But you often what they'll do is the Bitcoin advocacy thing where you'll talk about a present problem and they will answer with a future hypothetical as if it exists. And that will somehow make the present problem not exist. Um, we get this at the moment. This week's buzzword is NFTs, which are just too stupid to even discuss what they are. They're literally just a blockchain token that points to a web page somewhere and then you buy and sell the tokens as if they are an artwork. And that doesn't make any sense, but that's because this doesn't make any sense. Um, they use, they're mostly run on Ethereum because this stuff's all computer programs running on Ethereum. And they, of course, share in, in Ethereum's massive production of CO2. Um, so the excuse there is, oh, but Ethereum's going to proof of stake, so it doesn't matter. Well, one, it does matter because you're burning it right now. And two, Ethereum's been saying it'll go to proof of stake since before it started. You know, they've discovered that it's actually a hard problem and they have to solve it correctly and get it right the first time because Ethereum is a big deal. So, and they're doing genuine computer science work, right? They're trying to do a gen solve a genuine problem, even if it's a sort of self-inflicted one. But um, <coughs> they um, they haven't solved it yet, and it's been six months away since 2014. So I will believe they've solved it when they've solved it. But you get this all the time. It'll be great in the future. Oh, Bitcoin's just like the early internet. Well, no, it isn't. <laughs> and secondly. The internet was useful for real work from literally the moment since before it was the internet, when it was a bunch of networks funded by ARPA that weren't even running on TCP/IP. It was used for real work at every single stage, and which helps for technology development. Yeah. You have to have those stepping stones along the way. You have to have use cases being useful for people to want to plow money into and time into developing it. They didn't develop the internet for twenty years and then suddenly find a use for it. That is not how it happened at all. And thirdly. It's only ever an excuse for failure. 
and it's an appeal to teleology of technology, the idea that technologies must progress a along a certain hero's journey, which is not how anything works. You know, lots and lots of technologies just go nowhere and fail. Most do. The winners are very rare. You know, like how many how many network protocols didn't work out? How many network protocols are in the protocol graveyard because the internet beat them? Part of the problem with having this sort of debate is that you're almost having the debate on their terms, right? I mean, you've talked about NFTs; they're on Ethereum. Um, people object to uh, NFTs by saying, "Oh, the Ethereum is producing CO2," and they say, "Well, the Ethereum won't produce uh, CO2 in the future when we fix technical problem X." And you almost don't need to get into the debate on that level. And you almost no. need to step, step back and say, I don't really care whether you fix the massive problem that's been caused by what you're doing, because what you're doing is actually useless in itself. It's not actually serving the purpose that you say it is. And NFT, as you say, is just a cryptocurrency token that points to some existing work of art in the world, whether it's one that someone has made to put on this token or whether it's just one that they've stolen, essentially, by saying this points to a tweet and you can declare yourself to be the owner of that tweet. We've seen things like this for sale. We've seen... Uh, clips of basketball highlights for sale as these tokens on a blockchain somewhere, which gives you some sort of uh, almost almost self-proclaimed uh, right to say that you're the owner of, uh, of of an individual artwork. And I mean, seeing so much money pour into this uh, is is quite depressing. Again, for for the waste of potential aspect of it, um, but 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 also with these NFTs. You know, before COVID, we used to go to the Royal Academy Exhibition of Arts, uh, where they have modern art exhibition in, in London every year. And we used to go around and award um, best artwork of the year and charlatan of the year. And the charlatan of the year would always be like the most overpriced, like least effort piece. You know, the person who was trying to flog like a blank canvas for £50,000 or something. Um, and with the NFTs, you just think, well, that, that just blows it all out of the water. We can't even have this competition anymore because if you're selling a supposed digital right to someone else's artwork, <laughs> you you don't even have the, to have the idea to sell a blank canvas. You know, you I mean, have the idea to sell someone else's idea of a blank canvas. So NFTs exist because the whole point is to come up with a new form of magic bean that you can sell for money. Now, in terms of artistic event, artistic value, I'm an art maximalist, right? If someone does it with sincere intent, it's probably art. It might be bad art, but it's art, you know? Um, if Damien Hirst pulls a Damien Hirst conceptual art scam, actually, yeah, that's art, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, and that's a reasonable, defensible position. You know, and I mean, they're all blown out of the water by something like the KLF burn a million quid, you know? They didn't get a grant. They didn't sell it to a dumb rich person. They, it wasn't a tax scam. They made some enormously popular, brilliant, successful disco records. They sold lots of records. They made a million pounds, and then they set it on fire. Now, that is an unbeatable artwork, you know. <laughs> so conceptual art is great. Um, and the KLF burned a million NFTs. Well, you know, it's been done. It won't have the same impact. <laughs> it's just a sort of facsimile of, of something that, that someone else has done. Absolutely. And Damien Hurst is going to get into NFTs. And you know it'll be sort of scammy, sort of BS nonsense, and it'll be sort of fun, and the people who are rich enough to participate will enjoy it, and it'll be funny to talk about. And that's art. That's fine. I'm fine with that being art. Something can be totally be art, 
but it can also be a scam and also morally questionable and also a serious problem. Leaving Bitcoin aside, because we've sort of talked about how it's a speculative asset now, um, are there any uses specifically for the blockchain technology that can stand uh, where Bitcoin falls? Your book has a chapter on the concept of smart contracts and specifically another one on how they failed the music industry as well, um, and how maybe it's a bit of a hammer in search of a nail. But you can see this buzzword all the time, different companies saying that they're interested in using blockchain to solve some particular problem. And uh, notably, Facebook setting up Libra, which you wrote a, another book about, um, their attempt to establish their own cryptocurrency. So, you know, why are companies getting involved in blockchain type technology and cryptocurrencies? Um, is it actually going to solve any of their problems or is it just chasing hype as investors have done? So you'd know that I was going to say this, but no. No, it isn't. <laughs> so the idea of blockchain and the enterprise was literally started by Bitcoin fans. The Shine was coming, Shine was coming off Bitcoin by 2014. Mt. Gox exchange had collapsed. The Bitcoin price had crashed. The technology had a, was, had a reputation as being drug money. So they thought, can we market Bitcoin to businesses? Maybe we can talk about the blockchain. Maybe that's useful. So they tried marketing blockchain to the enterprise. Now, it was always a euphemism for Bitcoin, right? Um, they tried the further euphemism, distributed ledger technology. But I traced that one too, and the first time that was used was talking about Bitcoin. So it's always euphemisms for Bitcoin, because what it is, is it's a way of marketing some sort of tamper-evident ledger, which is just like a Merkle tree from 1979. It's just a hash tree, you know. It's a simple computer science thing every programmer learns. Um, and marketing it with, and this is the important point, Bitcoin marketing promises. It's decentralized. It's trustless. It will give you no central control. Knowing everything will be fine. A complete record, digital property, of internet of value. It'll be amazing. And... Um, the less sense the promises make and the less coherent they are, the better your pitch. So what they actually give you is maybe um, a something that is like a cryptocurrency blockchain, but it's under central control. So what you effectively have is a um, distributed data store, but the right ahead logs are in a particular format. Um, and it's just... Basically, it's nonsense. There is no job that a centralized blockchain does better than a database, um, none whatsoever. You can maybe work it, make it work as well as that, but it certainly won't be an improvement, and it's never technically necessary. What you could do, if you're not careful, is come up with a massive GDPR violation if you put personal information onto this thing, um, because... It turns out that if you have a Merkle tree ledger, it's really hard to redact. Anyone who's ever programmed a computer and used Git and had to remove a binary blob from a Git repo will know this because it breaks all the hashes and all the hashes change and everything stops working and it's really annoying. So none of this works as a technology. Um, but the marketing is so strong that people think there must be something in it. And also, IBM had its blockchain unit for many years. They recently shut it down because everyone left because it was going nowhere. Um, they were trying really, really hard to make this a thing because they wanted to sell consulting hours. And 
at some point, I think a straight majority of blockchain stories in the press were IBM press releases. You'd see this confusion of present and future in those as well, where they would, um, you'd have something in the story about how Visa is doing all these exciting things with blockchain, X, Y, and Z, and it's terribly, terribly exciting. And you track it down through a couple of layers and you get to a press release which said they were hypothetically thinking about some things a bit like that. Yeah, and releasing that press release is, again, just an exercise in hype management and, and share price management as well, isn't it? You want to be seen to be uh, uh, keeping up with the Joneses in terms of the current trends, even if you don't really have much going on. Yeah, I mean, the essential problem with um, blockchain for business is you have no assurance that the um, physical objects you're talking about exist. Um it is the garbage in problem. If your problem is that your data formats are bad, then you have to fix your data formats. And that, that's going to be work you have to do anyway. If your problem is interoperating, you have to build relationships to interoperate with people. And then you have that problem anyway. Um, the word blockchain was sort of useful for a while to get the uh, budget to do that and then neglect the bit where you use a blockchain for it. Uh, but it wasn't useful in itself. Um, IBM was trying very hard to push this stuff. I heard in unattributable conference gossip around early 2018 that they were having a lot of trouble and they'd been told in no uncertain terms to get some customers or else. They then signed up Walmart and Maersk, who no one's ever heard of, but they're the world's biggest shipping firm. Um, so Walmart and Maersk we both sold a product for doing a supply chain management thing. So its actual operation was completely centralized. Like it ran on Hyperledger, which is uh, enterprise blockchain software that IBM was developing. It's um, all the nodes were on the IBM cloud. They were all administered by the companies and the vendors used them because they were told to if they wanted to deal with Walmart or Maersk. And they did because it's business, but it was not any sort of distributed thing at all. It was literally so that they could say blockchain under press release. You do not get on the front page of section B of the New York Times by saying, we've got an exciting new supply chain database. Yeah, in SQL or whatever it is people use databases for. I don't know. Um, but I think exactly. this, is, this is part of the problem, isn't it? Is that essentially... People, you know, you hear about this for the supply chain. I've heard it in climate context, people saying, okay, we can ensure that things are sustainable all the way. Again, the problem is that you have this hammer in search of a nail problem that you have with cryptocurrencies. In the cryptocurrency case, when you're being defrauded, it's because someone's hacked into your account or because someone has tricked you into sending money over and not because the central authority can't be trusted and has taken all of your money from you. That is the kind of thing that does happen on a cryptocurrency exchange where the central authority where you have your cryptocurrency often can't be trusted and takes all of your money from you. But it doesn't happen so often in the case of banks and PayPal. And if it did, they would be cracked down on by the laws um, of the land. And in the case of the supply chain stuff, it's just like, how often is your problem the fact that someone has altered your database uh, from the outside or, or, or further on along the chain? And how often is your problem someone put in a mistake or lied to you, you know, or, or put in some incorrect information uh, maliciously or not? You know, it doesn't protect you from that kind of uh, trust problem. Exactly. Um, and that, those are the problems problem you often have. Often your problem is actually trust, like um, provenance, food provenance, say. Exactly. People who lie on paper will lie on a database. <laughs> and they can lie on a blockchain, and then you can't even change it if you find out it's a lie. 
the way you solve provenance problems is you have human inspectors who know the scams. They have to go to your supplier, look around, inspect stuff, talk to people, you know, basic stuff. Um, you can't automate away the human element like that. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, anyway, that's why blockchain for business isn't something you hear about so much anymore. And even when you do, it reads exactly like it, the press releases did in 2016. It's always coming in the fabulous future. And never actually being used. The, the last thing I want to talk about, because you do have a separate book on this um, alongside Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, is Facebook's attempt to establish a cryptocurrency, which we mentioned was called Libra. You said it's just changed its name, presumably because your book has so thoroughly <laughs> debunked the concept um, that they, they have I to hang their heads in shame now. But, um, uh... Well, I'll, or may, I don't know. It's either you or Big Horoscope, right? Has, um... <laughs> 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 so, uh, you or big astrology has come in and taken this out but um i i i have to admit i don't know anything about this other than the fact they were going to set it up so would you like to give us uh, a very quick um pricey of of what libra why libra and more specifically why i should go and read that copy of uh, your book and uh, the audience should as well facebook said they were going to do a cryptocurrency everyone said this makes no sense because it made no sense. That can't be a cryptocurrency. They'd be stupid. Why would they do that? They're not stupid. Then they released it, and it was a cryptocurrency. Everyone went, this is bizarre. So we, what they were going to do is they were going to do a currency that would run through the Facebook applications, which are big, right? They have 2 billion users across Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. They're big properties. Um, that's a big audience. So... What they were going to do is they were going to do a new currency called Libra. The currency units would be called Libra. And it would be backed by a basket of ordinary currencies. So that was a bit odd. Why would you do this? So the why of it turned out to be that they got someone in who thought that cryptocurrencies and blockchains were really cool. And then they got someone else in who thought cryptos and blockchains were really cool. And... They eventually had four people there who were all Bitcoin bros who thought Bitcoin is the best thing ever. It'll change the world and we can do it properly with Facebook. So they came up with this idea that in June 2019, they came out with the Libra white paper, which described their system. And had all these bizarre ideas in it that nobody understood. But if you'd been following Bitcoin, you'd know about all this stuff because it was all basically redigested re cryptocurrency ideas. And we will run a private currency and it will take over the world and we will bring financial inclusion to the um, unbanked and it'll be awesome. And they were completely sincere about this, right? They actually totally believe in this, but none of this was ever going to work. Um, their scheme was to have the Libra currency backed by actual money, like backed by um, treasury notes and the equivalents in other currencies, you know, very, very stable cash-based assets. So they would not lose money and it would be very, very secure. So that's good, except they'd use up so many of these things for 2 billion users, it would probably have destabilized the um, resources of some of the currencies. So what happened was actual financial regulators looked at this and literally within minutes, they were saying, you can't do this. I mean, it was an amazing reaction. With ours, they were saying, don't do this, and we want to call you up before the House and the Senate to talk to you about it. 
um, it was an amazing backlash because if there's one thing that uh, governments take super seriously, it's messing with the money. Because and this, that's is, this the, is part of the interesting thing about cryptocurrencies, isn't it? Because as much as Bitcoin advocates might claim they're on the verge of overthrowing the central banking system, the fact is they could be regulated out of existence fairly easily um, by seconds. shutting down all of the points of exchange for fiat, which would kill the price of Bitcoin stone dead because everyone wants to trade it for fiat. But no one is doing that because they don't view it as an actual threat. But the idea that Facebook might do it actually makes them view it as more of a threat. Is that what happened here? That's exactly what happened. No one worries about crypto because it's tiny. Um, they say don't break the laws and they enforce don't break the laws. But apart from that, I mean, the US, Europe, UK, these are capitalist countries. They love it when you go out. Governments love you to go out and make money, right? They really, really like it when you go out and get rich. They want you. Go out, get rich. We will help you. That's fine. Um, break, Don't break laws doing it, but get rich. So Facebook, however, is a known scoff law with a lot of problems. You cannot trust their word. They've agreed things with governments, then just broken those agreements and been fined multiple times. And then they wanted to mess with the money. That was not going to fly with anyone. So what happened was they um, had House and Senate hearings. They changed a lot of their plans really quickly. <laughs> and the whole thing was just a massive, massive disaster. The story here was Silicon Valley hubris. Facebook thought they were so cool and so smart that they could definitely do money better than those legacy governments could. And um, also that way their venture capital mates could have a private currency where they could move money around without the status jackboot of taxation on their billionaire necks. Um, so it turned out that governments are wise to that one. <laughs> And this is how we ended up with a situation where the good guys in the book are actually the central banks. Because, Which is an unusual book. Because their entire goal is stability. They want a stable economy where stuff works. That's their mandate. That is the central bank's actual job. And they are public institutions. They take their job seriously. You know, my opinion of them went up. <laughs> but... Um, Compared to Facebook, anyway, and um, yeah, so well, <laughs> this not, basically not the most popular organization out there. This basically had bombed out by about November 2019. Like, but in October, Mark Zuckerberg appeared before the House Banking Committee in the U.S., and he was a very—he's a very smooth talker, right? Excellent speaking voice, good talker, knows how to present himself, and he utterly and comprehensively failed to convince anyone of Facebook's bona fides. It was after that that uh, Libra revised their plan to a Libra 2.0 plan where they wouldn't do nearly as drastic, exciting plans. Um, they later tried to get this thing to go along. They couldn't get regulatory approval. Um, the original founder of the idea left Facebook eventually because they wanted to work on projects that weren't zombies. And then my book came out a year after I wanted it to, in October 2020. And then in November, they changed the name from Libra to DM, which was definitely a personal slight at me, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it seems, well, you know, um, correlation, causation, book comes out a few weeks later, immediately. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> changed, no, I, mean, I think you can take credit for that one. Yeah. Um, so I was hoping to get that book out in late 2019 when people still cared, but it's still a good book. Everyone should read it. 
<laughs> I think the, the, the interesting aspect is the hubris thing and maybe just the thought that a lot of these people who are um, in these companies and in high levels of these companies, um, you know, are not ideologically neutral necessarily and may also be spending a lot of time on on various Reddit forums and other places where this sort of thing is discussed, you know. Um, the, the sort of inside track on that, I think, is interesting in and of itself, even if uh, it's just a story of Facebook's folly, ultimately, and, and not an actual cryptocurrency that they'll be able to develop. It's also one of the first times the government very firmly said no to them. Yeah. Well, that, but that's the thing is they almost view them as a peer, don't they? I mean, it's 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 a case of like, oh, these big tech companies are um, these huge multinational players who we have to worry about as uh, putting their hands on the scale politically as well um, in, in a way that, uh, you know, a lot of people trading in a speculative asset is not going to do. Yeah. I mean... Let's be clear. A lot of these people are actually fans of Facebook and technological innovation. They think that's great, but they absolutely were not going to put up with Facebook messing with the money. That's very, very precious. Like some of the representatives were telling them directly, look, you have to understand, we use sanctions instead of sending soldiers. The US dollar is part of our security. You know, they said it directly. Yeah, it's a whole global hegemony thing that, you know, you're not going to let some... uh, Silicon Valley company undermine. Um, Absolutely not. So that's the story of Libra Shrugged. And it's none, its name is now DM, and there's still no sign of it going live. I assume they're still trying to come up with something that regulators will accept. They promised that they would not launch it without the approval of the US and Europe, neither of whom has shown any sign of approving this stuff. And obviously Switzerland, where they're incorporated, um, the Swiss regulators said, yeah, we're not approving anything that the rest of the world doesn't approve because Switzerland does actually like playing nice these days. I mean, so, I mean, the, the, the sort of, I almost didn't want to ask this, but because my position is as soon as people talk about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, especially only as a speculative asset, I kind of, I kind of then, I, I sort of don't care as long as they accept that point. Um, because when it comes to these speculative assets, the price can go up, the price can go down. It's a function of demand. It's a function of how many people think they'll get rich by investing into it. it it's not It's not necessarily something that you need to talk about um, in terms of technology or ideology anymore. Um, you can talk about the negative impacts that it has uh, by drawing away so much human potential from things that are much more worthwhile and uh, financial potential away from things that are more worthwhile. We've talked about Elon Musk, um, what he's spending his time doing and... Uh, and the environmental impact of directly mining it, which I think we should oppose as well. Um, but once people have accepted that it's this speculative asset, the sort of question of its price fluctuation is one that's of interest to people who are trying to make money off it. Um, and yet, I still almost want to ask, do you think that it will remain, do you think it's too firmly embedded and that the meme has too much power at this point um, for it to ever not be a speculative asset? Do you think that it might just end up replacing uh, gold as the sort of thing that gold bugs get into and uh, invest in and and speculate on the price of um, with the sort of same uh, libertarian ideological backing that, that gold accrued? Or do you think that we're just going to see endless cycles of hype and disappointment in this technology until eventually people get sick of it? So I think Bitcoin will be around for decades in one form or another. Because like all you need is a copy of the software, a copy of the blockchain, and two or more enthusiasts. You know, um, 
and then you can say that you have Bitcoin. So what will happen in terms of its interface to actual money, which is the thing that keep people interested, that will get more and more regulated. They're absolutely tightening that down ratchet by ratchet. It's just, that's just how it's happening. As they get their heads around this stuff, they're absolutely, it's going to be a much more regulated asset, much more regulated markets that will only increase. Um, so Bitcoin will still exist. How interesting it is, I don't know. Um, all the other stuff, the meme stuff, that was literally all just marketing and always has been. It really is just a speculative asset that you can't do anything with. Um, Ethereum's sort of more interesting because you can run arbitrary computer programs on it, but uh, everyone's still basically fascinated by number go up as the driving force. With um, replacing gold, like, again, that's just a marketing meme. I mean, it's amazing. You'll get the most gibbering, frothing gold bugs, and I'm not going to name any names, but you get them talking about Bitcoin, and suddenly they sound like the super sane person in the room. <laughs> yes, because they can assess things um, when it's not through the lens of their own bias, I guess. Yes, and also they tend to be actually rich in actual money. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like the uh, gold bug paradigm, Austrian economics, um, Bitcoiners are the ones that more conventional Austrian economics fans laugh at. <laughs> so that was always aspirational, replacing gold that is just a marketing pitch for Bitcoin. It isn't replacing gold. Gold's useful, you know. Uh, at, now that gold is not money anymore and it's increasingly useful industrially, you can say gold has a price, has a natural worth, amount that it's worth. And that's lower than what it is now. Price of gold is mostly speculation. But you compare it to something like silver, which is very much an industrial metal, okay? it's It used to be money as well, but now it's just an industrial metal and its price goes up and down wildly according to changing supply, changing demand, and manipulation of a thin commodity market. But, you know, the price is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, people Bitcoin, will always want it for Bitcoin's reasons other value than speculating zero. price. You know, um, got, silver's pretty. It's fun. You can make jewelry with it. It's really nice. And it's cheap enough that you can afford to buy a bit and work with it. Uh, gold is the same, you know. It, it's just nice. But... Um, Bitcoin is literally has no use case. I'm sure someone would claim that they have a, a great deal of aesthetic value from knowing that they have some sort of cryptographic key sitting on a hard drive somewhere. But uh, um, to, to me, is equivalent to jewelry. You know? Yes, but is it art? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that that is another um, lengthy lengthy podcast. On on that note, David, I want to say thank you very very much for being so generous with your time as with many of my guests perhaps more generous than you originally intended um i really really appreciate it and um i think you know there were so many amazing anecdotes and stories from attack of the 50 foot blockchain that we couldn't get onto you have a summary of the whole silk road fiasco the various different uh, scams and so on that people have fallen for so if people want an accessible history of how bitcoin came to be where it is um that's not by someone who's trying to sell you bitcoin uh, i would highly recommend that um on that subject, have you got anything else that you would like to plug and that the audience should be aware of? So I have the books, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain and Libra Shrugged. They are both great, I think. Uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain is more the um, wacky chain reaction slapstick Rube Goldberg machine full of custard pies sort of thing. 
Uh, Libra shrugged is more of a sensible chuckle, <laughs> but they are both people who like read them. Both think they're fantastic. I have a blog, which is also called Attack of the Blockchain. If you search for David Gerard, you will find me um, at David Gerard on Twitter. Website's davidgerard.co.uk, and um, I'm easily findable. Okay, that'll do it. And uh, you know, I, I mean, I, we I reached out to you to to talk about this. I think maybe uh, Monday night. Um, thinking, oh, okay, I'll read the book over the next few weeks, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop reading it. I, I, I got it done way faster than I thought, which I think is a compliment. Um, so I'm sure that the the audience would uh, would enjoy uh, Attack of the Fifty Foot Blockchain as well um, if they can get their hands on a copy. There's excerpts on the website if you're not sure. I mean, I started following Bitcoin in like 2011, and it was like, oh, good, libertarian nerds have come up with their own kind of money. This'll be fun to watch. And fundamentally, everything about Bitcoin follows directly from the sort of people who started Bitcoin. Like you could totally predict the following 10 years and they've come out pretty much as you'd expect, except even stupider, right? Everything about it is implicit in the way it started and the sort of people who got into it. You know, it's it was just obviously what would follow. And it's um, an endless comedy gold mine, backed by comedy gold. <laughs> yeah, it's Titanic 2 vibes. It's like, we all know what's going to happen here. Okay. <laughs> David, thank you very, very much for being so generous with your time and coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. And thank you to David Gerard for being so generous with his time and coming on the show. You can find lots, lots more episodes of Physical Attraction on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form, any comments, questions, concerns you might have, please get in touch and I will endeavour to answer them in a future show or via email. There are many, many different ways you can support the show, which include the Patreon. The Patreon page is patreon.com slash physicalattraction. There you'll find all of the episodes early, ad-free, dozens of episodes up there early, which will not be released until later on this year. Thank you to those patrons who have subscribed and helped to support the show. It really means a lot to me and helps us to keep going, so I, I strongly appreciate that. And we're doing other stuff there as well, we're experimenting with. I'm thinking of even setting up a newsletter that might go up there. Um, But for now, there's a few bonus episodes and bonus pieces of content that you're not going to get anywhere else. And when I do interview someone, uh, patrons will be the first people I ask if they have any particular questions, as you heard earlier on in this show. There are, of course, other ways to support the show. There is a one-time donate button on the Physics Podcast website. And you can, of course, support us by telling other people who might be interested to listen to the show. Until next time, then, please do. Take care.